Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the oddly narrated setup chapter of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who would honestly have probably let the manor house burn down rather than go up there in the middle of the night. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? So exactly on the same page as you about the idea of getting up at 3 a.m. to go do anything. If my hip is hurting and it's dark out and it's probably just hooligans damaging an already damaged home, I'm like, eh, I can clean it up in the morning. That's I was going to say, when you say getting up at 3 a.m., that presumes that you've gone to sleep already, which we all know is True. the lie that's being told here. <laughs> but if I had. Fair enough. Well, but, we are but... starting the fourth book of Harry Potter. Yeah. Harry Potter and the I can Goblet hear of Fire. How excited you are. I'm so excited. <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm very excited. This is, um, full disclosure, d- at least for today, um, my favorite of all of the books. So I am, I am delighted to be able to hey. go on this journey with you all. Um, but I also maintain the right to change that decision even when I choose. Uh, it, 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 does, it does really impress me that, again, I have no nostalgic history associated with these books at all. But when I was, you know, now reading a physical hardcover of the books, I wrapped myself in a quilt. I had a warm cup of tea. <laughs> And I was just like a little five-year-old reading with reading with a flashlight again. I was so excited to pick this one up again. That makes my heart very happy, Spencer. Um, so we are we are setting out this one. This book I would also say is uh, considerably longer than mm-hmm. any of the other books we have read thus far. Um, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah this is a doorstopper. Uh, indeed, and it it um, portends future future volumes from this series as well. Uh, so yeah, we they are, don't get shorter. No, they they do not. Um, we are starting with chapter one, The Riddle House, and we have some segments that we have done in the past. I am, I am eager to know if we are continuing with the same segments. Normally, we do a rapid-fire recap, which is absolutely still happening with some slight changes to the rules, I have been informed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then, BJ, are we having some wizard wheezes today? Uh, we are going to wheeze a little bit, but I think I'm going to start more into the territory of newbie's notes because... We're really getting out of uh, the territory of things that I know that aren't just purely spoilers that I happen to know. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, which yeah, I mean, I'll frequently probably... uncontextualized spoilers in your case. Yes. <laughs> um, it, this came about from, I mean, basically seeing things on the internet and then essentially being dragged to the very last movie by one of my friends to a midnight showing. Good. So you got the last half of the last story. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so we will have newbies notes. Um, those are those are steadfast in our canon here. And uh, yes. we will award house points, although that might get put on the back burner for this chapter for reasons that will soon become apparent. <laughs> and um, then there are um, questions, questions, queries. Questions, queries, and quibbles. quibbles. Maybe, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which I can't imagine how you would have any after this chapter that fits just straight on to the end of where we left off with the last book. So instead of uh, the Star Trek Trouble with Tribbles, we have uh, qualms with quibbles. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. So 
<laughs> to start us off, though, we do have some new rules about the rapid fire recap and the point system. And um, Spencer, we have tell sort us of how that's going to work. Well, after you so thoroughly succeeded, almost surprisingly, given how much difficulty you had when we first started this off, huh? you ended up coming in. I think it was. I'll double check my total, but I think you ended up coming about three points um, over your goal. Uh, which was well done. You'd lost quite a few points in the early rounds before you got a hang of it. It was a slow start. Dear Lord, did you? <laughs> you? You fell into a good groove. We're going to change around the rules to both make them simpler and also more complex, because we both giveth and taketh away at equal turn. <laughs> uh, simple part of things is the actual basic point scoring. Uh, as before, you can get a point for coming in underneath a goal in terms of the length of your synopsis for each chapter. We're going to set it at a standard two minutes for every one of these 37 chapters. Make it simpler. You also can get an additional point if you set a bet for yourself. If you pick at a given time, and that time ends up being within five seconds either under or over, you will get an additional point. As there are 37 chapters, your point goal for this book is 50. So for about a third of these, you will need to bet or more if you actually miss any. Notably for the bets, if your bet is incorrect, you lose all the points you would have gotten anyway. And so no points for that given chapter. Even if I am under two minutes anyway. Yes. Okay. Effectively, you throw out everything you have gained. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. To make... To make this more fun, though, because as we've noted previously, in every one of these books, what we expect is going to happen with respect to the house point totals just gets thrown out in the end because a professor decides he wants to put his thumb on the scale. I'm not picking a particular professor, but one has done it more than others. How it works here is that for these 37 chapters with your two-minute goals, we are going to keep track of the total time that you come in with. And if in the end you come in at over a minute, uh, one hour and 15 minutes for all of these chapters combined for the total length of your synopsis. If you come in over that, you will lose 10 points off whatever your total is at that given time. Mm -hmm. If you come in under it, you will gain 10 points. Okay. So this is the opportunity for a last second exciting spoiler to just throw a complete wrench in everything you've built and predicted and planned for the way you have to to succeed at this goal. And I can just almost feel BJ's giddiness at what may happen there. Well, what I'm actually hearing in these uh, updates to the rules is that BJ does not have any more power in this situation. B BJ, BJ's power was playing an integral role in designing these rules in the first place. Okay. Okay. So it's just higher level power at this point. Yes. It's it's not in, in it's not low level finagling that, that mm -hmm. we're playing at anymore. We're you're, getting You're up into, to Minister of Magic uh, at this point. Big boss territory. I see. Exactly. I see. As before, if you succeed in accomplishing your fifty point goal, uh, you will get a prize. The prize for last season will be sent to you here shortly. And if you fail, an appropriate penalty will be chosen by BJ. Okay. Um uh, do do you choose to accept these terms? I do choose to accept the terms that you have laid out. Um, I believe that we can go on to cast an unbreakable vow now, uh, at which point one of, whoever breaks the contract dies an in imminent death upon the breach. Uh, so that feels pretty good, even though you won't know what that is until a couple of books from now, Spencer. Yeah. You know, if my clients had those kind of contracts to sign, I would be out of the job. That would really <laughs> simplify the process of litigating contract disputes. Is that, it's okay, easier, yeah. did, did your CEO die? Yes, you're probably in breach. But Would you be a lot more excited to write contracts and learn contract law, though? Uh, so long as my name's not on the damn thing, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to sign an attorney affirmation when it comes to that agreement. <laughs> But if you have agreed to add terms and we have signed this, signed at least orally this, this unbreakable vow, are you ready to get started? Because I have one of the 12 stopwatches that BJ bought me last season here at hand. How did you choose uh, which stopwatch? Because as we uh, noted our, on our last uh, go through, Spencer had 
somehow lost or broken or otherwise uh, misplaced his it was, it was giant novelty stopwatch. It was it was an old giant novelty stopwatch, and I I think I pressed the uh, on button too hard and it popped out. It's <laughs> very sad. <laughs> it was very sad. It even had a spring sound when it did. Oh no! It was very sad. But so you BJ have a time very, turner now. Uh, BJ very helpfully bought me 12 that all had their alarms go off at different periods for different reasons for like a week before I learned how to turn them off. And uh, I picked the one that was closest to me and was upright. That was the criteria I assessed for which one I'm going to use. All right. But if you are ready, I am. So we can get started and see how you do with now the first round of our challenge. I am ready. I do. I got to say, uh, Spencer, BJ, I, um, we have taken a little bit of a hiatus from our Harry Potter recordings. So for this, our first chapter, um, our first episode for uh, Goblet of Fire, I am not going to make a bet because Fair. I have no idea. Feeling, a, feeling a little rusty. So we're you just- You have your two minute goal. Yeah, we're gonna fingers crossed, hang on by our fingernails, do other things, I don't know, but we're gonna try. Yeah, I wanted to ask about this last time. I can give you like a five or 10 second warning. I just figured that would break your flow. No, I'd rather just head down barrel through. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and worm your way into the me. end, and, and huh? hopefully it doesn't catch your tail. Okay. Spencer. At your pleasure, sir. All right. We begin book four in Little Hangleton at the house villagers still call the Riddle House, a derelict manor with a dark past. It's well known that half a century ago, the maid found all three riddles, Mr. and Mrs. Riddle and their grown son, Tom, dead. The police are flummoxed, but the pub goers at the hanged man blamed the gardener, Frank Bryce, uh, given the fact that the house wasn't broken into, he had a key, and he was known to be odd. But Frank says he saw a strange, dark-haired teenage boy near the house on the day of their death. Finally, the coroner's report comes back, showing uh, that no evidence that our victims had been harmed at all, and may in fact have been frightened to death. So Frank goes free and simply continues on as caretaker of the house for 50 years, in a constant battle with neighborhood kids to keep them from vandalizing the house. One night, Frank sees firelight up at the house from his cottage and goes to investigate. He makes his way upstairs to the lit room uh, and hears voices that call each other by some very strange names, such as Wormtail and Nagini. He spies a small man taking care of someone in a chair at the fire. The high, cold voice from the man near the fire says they're waiting, uh, staying at the house until after the Quidditch World Cup, because security is high and there are wizards pouring in from around uh, into the country from around the world. Frank has understandable trouble with Quidditch, Ministry of Magic, Wizards, and Muggles. Then Harry Potter comes up, and our man in charge is determined to continue the plan only with him, despite Wormtail's mis misgivings. Apparently, Wormtail has already disappeared a woman named Bertha Jorkins and is having serious second thoughts, but the other one is convinced that his faithful servant will return to him. Frank is becoming increasingly uncomfortable as this conversation goes on, recognizing at, that, at the very least, the man with the cold voice is a dangerous killer. And then the hissing starts, and a 12-foot-long snake snip slithers past Frank at her master's call. As Frank starts to panic, Nagini informs her master of his presence on on the landing, Wormtail brings him in, and Frank, plucky 77-year-old war vet gardener, starts lying through his teeth. But do not lie to Lord Voldemort, Muggle, for he knows, he always knows. Wormtail turns the chair around, a wand emerges, and there's a great green flash of light, and Frank falls dead to the floor. 200 miles away, the boy called Harry Potter woke with a start. One minute, 58 seconds, and 31 milliseconds. Woo! Well done. Getting Under back the, the groove. Starting, starting with a bang, I did do a editing session while we discussed the rules today. <laughs> good call, good call. Um, so we have an odd, odd little chapter to start us out on this fourth book. Really odd. I mean, I, go into, I can go into Nubie's notes uh, here in a bit, but this is quite a change from what we've, uh, 
we've kind of gotten comfortable with with the initial starter chapters for Harry Potter, which at least for the last two books have really been quite similar to each other. Mm-hmm. I actually think that, I was thinking about it today, the narrator that we get for this chapter seems to be the same narrator we have for the first chapter of the first book. Yeah, and of any of the first chapters we've had so far, that's the one this one is most similar to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, BJ, do you have, before we go to Newbie's Notes, do you have things that you would like to wheeze about? Um... I think little Hangletons being a thing and being next next to great Hangletons, I think it was, is, is very entertaining. It's also very um, British. Yes. I also, I didn't go down a Spencer hole, but I was tempted because it mentioned that the, the riddles were found in their dinner things. Mm-hmm. Is this like dressing gowns just for eating or... I would imagine that it means that they are the type of family of the wealth and status that would dress for dinner. That That's sort of what, what I assumed, but it also like was a very weird and amusing juxtaposition to like, this is a small town with like a large manor in it, mm-hmm. but they are dressing for dinner on a random night. Uh, this strikes me as a family who dresses for dinner every night. All night. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, so I, I found that very funny because this this feels very um, like a twirling mustache evil more than anything else. <laughs> it may just be purely generational. Is that it seems mm. based on timing, this is taking place in uh, shortly after World War II, or at least yes. a few years after. Yes, it. I would say and it's probably forties, it, right, or early fifties, yeah. maybe. I mean, and yeah. the UK was. Com- like surprisingly prosperous then so mm-hmm. like this would obviously be a thing that would still happen and if you <laughs> listen if you watch as many british mysteries as i do <laughs> that take place in small towns there are a surprising number of manor houses with enough money for people to need to dress for dinner and usually someone gets killed so this is well, spot on i don't see what's wrong here <laughs> and the point i was saying for generational too is that the two of the murder victims are distinctly described as being very elderly and so if they grew up in a late Victorian Edwardian period, for them, though it may be old fashioned even at that time, it would have been just perfectly normal that one would change for dinner. Yes. I will um, say I did uh, look up while we were talking. There is um, a place in, in the United Kingdom near Brighton called Hangleton Manor. And um, it is a restaurant that seems to sell overpriced bar food. Was it named that such like... before the book? Um, it, it No, it was, actually. Hold on, let me go back to... Um, <laughs> oh, this is where we have ended up here. Um, Hangleton Manor Inn and the adjoining manning, manor house and associated buildings form a bar and restaurant complex in Hangleton, an ancient village and latterly a 20th century housing estate, which is part of the English city of Brighton and Hove. The manor house is the oldest secular building in the Hove part of the city, some 15th century features remain and there has been little change since the high sheriff of sussex rebuilt it in the mid 16th century (laughs) so in a non-covid world this feels like an outing for us (laughs) (laughs) someday someday they also have a dietary menu which i'm really curious about (laughs) returning to the book (laughs) do you have any further wizard wizard wizards to go through Oh, God. Uh, no, I don't have further wizard <laughs> wheezes to go through, but I I do find it very funny that bread and butter is considered, is considered a nibble here, and also their their menu is all over the place, which is the most British thing ever, mm-hmm. yeah. including starters and sharing with sticky chicken wings, prawn cocktails, 
and baked camembert. Fair enough. Um, and a main course of crispy aubergine katsu curry. So basically, everywhere <laughs> that they've ever like touched, the sun never like, sets on the Angleton Manor menu. Exactly. <laughs> Though maybe it should. So newbies notes from now both of our newbies. What are we? What are we talking about here? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to provide the structure, and BJ uh, chime in whenever you like. Um, first thing to note. Change is kind of scary. We've been kind of mocking this series for really falling into a groove with respect to its opening and ending chapters that we can mm-hmm. almost just recite them from memory because they were always the same damn thing. This is not that. This is, Sarah, like you know, very similar in structure and purpose, it seems, to the very first chapter of the very first book. And it gives kind of an aura that we're not like starting a new section of the series again. Mm-hmm. Like that was the starter off of the first chunk of the series. Now we're going into a second chunk, and so we're getting a similar intro to introduce it. Like before, it's steeped with references to Voldemort, a magic of plots of murders in the background, or even in the foreground here. Yeah, I was going to say in the foreground, which is very different. So we've had some sort of on-screen death in Harry Potter, but it's it's it hasn't been casual. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask about that, too, is that mostly on-screen deaths have been implied or just right. kind of off-camera. They've been, you know, discussed, they clearly happened, but in terms of them being directly depicted and described, even from the perspective of the person that's dying, that feels new. Mm-hmm. Has that ever, have we ever had that before? No, I mean, no, I don't think so. I think, um, I mean, who, hmm, what are, who has actually died in the series at this point? Uh, the first defensive against the dark arts. Professor. Yes, Vol- um, yeah. not Voldemort, sort of, Quirrell. Quirrell. Yeah, Quirrell, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Quirrell did. Buckbeak um, did. Uh, for a while. Well, sort of. <laughs> sort of. But again, Quirrell died off screen. And yes. Even, that's even kind of our interpretation. We just interpret that uh, Dumbledore just straight murdered his ass mm-hmm. and he otherwise died mm-hmm. from Harry. We didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom, Tom Riddle, the journal, died, but it was a freaking book. So Yeah, that was yeah. a sort of memory yeah. encased in the book. Um, yeah. The... Uh, no, not cockatrice. Basilisk, but that's the not basilisk, a person. Right. And we don't care about creatures in this set of books. <laughs> As a matter of course, no, we do not. We are very human focused. So this is really the first on-screen human death that we've had, and you're right, Spencer. It is. It is very casual. It it is a surprisingly Game of Thronesy kind of opening to this book, mm-hmm. where it's. Game of Thrones developed a reputation of murdering start, starter perspective characters to start off each text, and having it here is... Interesting. It, it, it's interesting. It, it really gives me a kind of ch- change-up kind of response to it, of where I'm suddenly disconcerted, and that is well fed on throughout this chapter, of where this is a pretty dark, intimidating opening. There are elements of this that are just straight-up horror. It reminds me that when J.K. Rowling wants to write horror, she actually does a pretty good job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Riddle House... I'm willing to believe this is okay, associated we have, with the... that. This is question, Spencer. <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm not. There's no point to a question on this. The only other <laughs> okay. riddle we know in the damn text is Tom Riddle, and but and we do have another Tom referenced. We do have a Tom referenced here in the family as well. Right, we, we have a Tom Riddle referenced here. So presumably, this is sort of all fitting together. But it's also really weird with what Voldemort seems to know and not know about the gardener. Yeah, that's interesting because. It, one thing that's ambiguous here is the only Tom... We have known a Tom Riddle before. Yes. We know that is the apparently original name of Voldemort before he recast himself in a different role. Mm-hmm. We knew that he was an orphan. We knew that he was a student at Hogwarts. What we have here, though, is three dead Riddles in the Riddle Manor, or Riddle House, mm-hmm. two 
two elderly and their adult son named Tom Riddle. Yeah. Yep. This does not seem Voldemortish. How do you feel about reason... Lockbox Mysteries? I, lo- I love a good Lockbox Mystery. <laughs> I'm rather fond, yes. <laughs> I'm not going to ask any questions here. I'm just going to talk out the questions that are in my mind. Okay, you keep talking. I'm going to look something up, Spencer. Please. <laughs> yeah, um... This just summarizes things, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but the qu- question I have practically is... Hold on. You keep talking, Spencer. I have to go to the library. We're <laughs> <laughs> really doubling down. Okay. Um... What, what this raises the question is, I'm willing to presume that this is not Tom, that the Tom Riddle that is dead here on the floor is not the Tom Riddle that we know. We have another teenager that is referenced as sh- uh, being present at the manor shortly before things occurred. I'm presuming is the Tom Riddle that will, that uh, would thereafter become Voldemort. Really? The timing of it. Because I, I disagree with that. Okay. That's what we're talking about right now. Yeah. I, I mean, just because like, if you, if I had to choose like a dark haired, like skinny teenager, uh, Harry's dad would be fairly high up there. I, I, I was pondering that. I just don't think the timing works. And it's the timing that leaves that leaves me with a lot of questions, too, of where these Fair events enough, are yeah. explicitly described as 50 years in the past. Seems right. too old for, for uh, Harry's dad or pretty much any of the main characters that are parents that would know. It also seems older older for Voldemort than I would have thought. Right. I mean, working on the assumption that he you know, didn't you know create a clone to leave his own dead adult body there. Mm-hmm. He, if he is the teenager, that would still imply that the man is now in his mid or later 60s. Which, older than I can have the impression of. I mean, did you have an idea of what his age was, BJ, from what we've seen? Um, it, I guess it had to have been older because uh, he would have already been out of Hogwarts by the time uh, Harry's father went through. And ha- it was around the time that Hagrid was there, I think it right. is. So, And if it, you'll remember, yeah. the Chamber of Secrets was opened 50 years before. Right. right. So the, um, the timing... The timing perfectly works. I think the thing that keeps throwing me off is I just am unwilling to ever view Hagrid as being in his 60s. Sure. Yeah, but he's got that giant blood in him, so he doesn't age normally. Um, May I... I have gone to the library. I have come back with information. I wanted to make sure I was doing something (laughs) that was in the book and not in the movie. Um, Would you like some information that we have already had related to this not question, but (laughs) series of statements that you are making, Spencer? Um, So I am going back to book two when we are in the Chamber of Secrets. Um, And this is when when Voldemort or when this memory of Tom Riddle reveals his name and switches the letters around to I am Lord Lord Voldemort. Mm -hmm. And he says, you see, he whispered, it was a name I was already using at Hogwarts to my most intimate friends only, of course. You think I was going to use my filthy muggle father's name forever? I, in whose veins run the blood of Salazar Slytherin himself through my mother's side, I keep the name of a foul common muggle who abandoned me even before before I was born just because he found out his wife was a witch. No, Harry, I fashioned myself a new name, a name I knew wizards everywhere would one day fear to speak when I had become the greatest uh, sorcerer in the world. I, I appreciate that reminder because that was going to be one of my questions about everything we've heard previously. The relationship between Voldemort and his dad was not positive, was yes. not good. Now appears to have been murdery, which adds an extra dimension to it. We're going straight Greek mythology associated with this. Um, so it, it is good to have that further explained out that the man who was, again, an orphan, would not voluntarily pick or keep or keep for very long the name of his father. Mm-hmm. Well, you also... 
I'm a little amused that you went Greek mythology because that has a, another side to that coin that probably didn't happen here. Well, again, some of his descriptions of his mom, but you know, we'll leave those out for right now. We will, we will get more information about his mom later. Do, do the books go in that direction? Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. Um, I mean, moving on to the next book, because that, that was just a, a series of just confusions on my part. Uh, we get to meet Frank Bryce this chapter and mm-hmm. get, get to see a rather admirable and tragic figure associated with him. I mean, there's clear bravery in here. I mean, there's clear determination. There's a willingness to ignore the stones being cast in by the, by the surrounding community that is just quintessential British stoicism, mm-hmm. as well as a tragic background associated with seemingly a very difficult time in the war, both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also get to see a kind of recurring theme for Rowling is that she seems to like individuals and have a rather negative view when it comes to people. Um, <laughs> particular individuals she'll, she'll, she'll often celebrate, will condemn other ones in equal terms, but whenever there's a group of people around, she usually frames them in a pretty negative light, and that comes through here, is that they exist for the purpose of this initial chapter to spread negative rumors that they just never really bother to leave. Mm-hmm. Yep. We also have something kind of weird here that I don't remember if we had before that World War II happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And kind of like maybe similar-ish to to what we view as World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also get... And this is con- kind of confusing to me, and I wonder if this is just like the separation between the Riddle House and, you know, everything else wizardry, that this gardener was there forever. And so it it's weird to me that, I mean, unless, you know, uh, Voldemort's mother was just like, all right, I'm going to like immerse myself in the muggle world, uh that like he wouldn't figure something out or have like some weird interactions with this family because basically everybody that comes into any sort of contact with wizards just figures something out unless there's the uh, men in black mind wipe that that comes through which may have happened yeah um we will i mean is this why we will uh, get an answer to voldemort's mother gives him up because she got an oedipus prophecy I mean, there are other alternatives here for murdering your father in Greek mythology. We could go straight, you know, Zeus and Cronus if we wanted to. Um, we we will get an answer for how all of this happened. Gotcha. Not in this book. Or the next <laughs> oh, one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Firmly in book six. Well, with respect to the uh, murder victims that are underlying our mystery to start this first chapter off, um, the only description of them we get is that they were in perfect health other than that they were dead. Uh-huh. It's a wonderful British way of describing a condition. Um <laughs> Based on the description and them seemingly dying in abject terror, but nothing otherwise physically wrong with them, it seems cursy from what we've seen before. Um, don't really know enough yet about how certain curses work, but perhaps we'll see more of the curse of the book. I the mean, idea it, of an... it seems a little like uh, Azkabani or uh, what was that mushroom weirdo? Um, Give us more than that, Peter. The The one that preys on your fears and to turn into a thing that, that you fear oh, the most. <laughs> Yeah, the Bogart. Yes. Bogart. Bogart, yes, thank you. They, didn't they grow in, like, musty, dark places? Yeah, they, they like, dark... But of all the way to, <laughs> ways to describe that, Mushroom Weirdo was not going to be in my top ten. Oh, but now I'm never going to be able to unthink that, so thanks, BJ. Um... I am happy to provide <laughs> these services while we go through these books. Um, the old man charging the hooligans with his walking stiff and stiff leg is just so very stereotypical old man English that I'm amused. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very Watson. Yeah. 
we get to meet a third member of uh, Voldemort's posse, or a second member, I suppose. Uh, Nagini? Am I pronouncing that right? Nagini, yes. Nagini. I thought we um, met Nagini before in the last book. Really? When? I thought Harry had a run-in with her. What? I mean, we, we had a basilisk. We have had very dead snake. now, so... Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had we had the snake in the very first chapter, which was boa constrictor, so I don't think they would need to milk it for venoms. They could frequently describe in this chapter. So I do. Yeah. I, I thought that was I thought that was not Guinea, but maybe I was mistaken. Yeah, who knows? Uh, I briefly had a massive brain fart when it came to these characters, where I started saying "worm tongue" in my mind whenever <laughs> I was reading "worm tail," and really started transporting into a very different book series and a very different series of conversations. Mm-hmm. Found my uh, way out of it somehow. Good. Do you remember who Wormtail is? Do I remember who Wormtail is? Yes, Peter okay. Pe- Peter Pettigrew. Yes. I, I'm just making sure that we're all on similar, at least I, vaguely, pages. But I'm well, on Kindle and you're on hardback, so, and I bet I have a feeling Sarah's in a paperback, so we might be on very different pages in technicality. I have my hardback as well. As we do further wizard wheezes in the future, finding the same paragraph will be a challenge, oh but I'm sure we'll work through it. it. We have a very interesting line from Voldemort in this chapter of where Peter Pettigrew, Wormtail, says that it could be done without Harry Potter. We don't know what, but Voldemort resists that idea. It says, I have my reasons for using the boy, as I've already explained to you, and I will use no other. I have waited 13 years. A few more months will make no... We don't know what this is. It seemingly is not associated with murder. Because we hear that Voldemort and Wormtail played a role in murdering a Bertha Jorkins. I think I got that right. That is um, a kind of great name. And <laughs> about as British as you can get without being like a real name, basically. There is some suggestion that they need another murder for, again, some reason. Possibly it has to do with whatever they're feeding Voldemort. God help us. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's Harry. They seem to be like they're describing those in two separate categories, and that Harry's going to be used for some different, unrelated purpose. Well, partially related purpose. Wasn't Harry Potter basically supposed to be the vessel that Voldemort works on semi-immortality through? I... And he could sort of use any wizard, but it had to be a strong wizard for him to be useful, and... Then there were probably other reasons that I might vaguely know that Harry Potter is, like, a really good choice, but... I don't know anything about any of those, I don't think. Sarah, do I know anything about any of those? No. <laughs> okay, I'm mind-wiping myself for the last 30 seconds. Done. Happy to do it. Um, but I, th- I thought that was talked about in one of the previous books, that he was trying to inhabit should, wizard. Hey, 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 should I take off my earphones? Do you guys want to talk this out for a second? No, you are. You're sort of right, BJ. I mean, he was... I think what you're... I think what you're thinking about is in the second book when um, Tom Riddle was delighted that it was Harry Potter who had found him, and he became very right. interested in Harry Potter, but mostly just to know how he had defeated Voldemort. Right. That... Tom Riddle is distinct and separate and different than Voldemort. Well, the, but... the diary, Vol- Tom Riddle. But yes. we had that kind of with Quirrell in yeah. the first book. I was going to give you credit for that, is that we have seen signs before that Voldemort's ability to live independently is limited and yes. maybe adjusting over time. Um, he seems like he can function at least semi-independently now, so maybe he's improved. Mm-hmm. But it's he needs to apparently be constantly nursed and given whatever is in this cup or vial to keep going. Yeah. Um, so perhaps he's gotten a little bit more independence. Perhaps he does need to bind himself to someone for some purpose. 
it seems like there's an element of grudge associated here. Perhaps it is destiny, perhaps it is associated with the fact that whatever occurred between the two of them some 13 years in the past needs to now be completed and uh, tied with a bow on so that Voldemort can now get past it, mm-hmm. both either emotionally or physically. Who knows? But, I don't know if I've got enough here to go on. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it clearly is frustrating him that Peter Pettigrew is a lily-livered. Uh, very much so. That From his, Voldemort's perspective, Peter Pettigrew is just looking for the next available excuse to get out of town and leave him to his lonesome, which Voldemort does not seem to think that he would survive very long. Yep. Which, again, from just a loyalty perspective, if you really can't survive without this guy, and he could effectively kill you by just walking out the door and not turning around, maybe use a bit of a carrot rather than a stick in terms of dealing with this person, but, you know, it yeah. seems to work. It's Peter Pettigrew, though, so whatever. It's Peter Pettigrew. Yeah, Voldemort seems to know who he's dealing with here. Um, we also get Voldemort suggesting that as for the protection surrounding the boy, I believe my plan will be effective, which is very interesting, because we've, we've been talking about this old magic spell that Harry's mom cast through her actions to protect him, and mm-hmm. how it's not well understood, and it kind of functions as older than the set rules of magic by which the universe is governed, and it's very powerful for that reason. Well, if Voldemort hasn't... Mm-hmm. Well, when you say the set rules of magic, I would say the magic that is taught at Hogwarts, because... A lot of wizards, especially powerful wizards, do magic that is not Hogwarts magic per se, like Harry was doing in the first book. This strikes me as the kind of spell that's difficult to just straight up cast. It needs to be a kind of act, a sacrifice associated with mm-hmm. it, or an act of love-based sacrifice for this one in particular. So it's it's less of a thing that you can put clear rules and math associated with it in a way that could be you know taught and passed along. Yeah. So the idea that Voldemort has a means of getting around that just is a further intimidating showing of just how powerful it is in the scope of his understanding. It's... Again, I'm feeling like I'm just leaving a collection of mysteries and nuggets here that I'll return to later, but we again also have him suggest with respect to, Ber- to Bertha Jorkins that she was a, a member of the Ministry of Magic in some capacity, mm-hmm. and that uh, whatever was done for done to her, she was fit for nothing after my question, and that yep. memory charms can be broken by a powerful wizard as I proved when I questioned her. We don't know what he questioned her about. We don't know what memory charm would have been in place or who would have put it there. We don't know what his purpose for this was. It seemed like it was just kind of opportune and it wasn't necessarily planned out in the future because based on the description, it seems like Wormtail just kind of met her at an inn and then seized an opportunity that he thought his master would appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yep. But we don't really have much to go on there other than make, put a pin in, in it and return to it. We also have a reference to my faithful servant at Hogwarts in an odd, broken sentence that's almost like our listener, Frank, wasn't able to hear all of it, or otherwise Voldemort is not expressing all of his thoughts completely. Because it's associated around the idea that they need a second murder and that I have my faithful servant at Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those in some way being tied together, but we don't really know how. Um, Peter, you it's, raised the question about it. Sorry? I was going to say, it's also very interesting that this is sort of the first time that we get... I mean, it's it stills hilariously heavy-handed foreshadowing, but it's not like as clear mm-hmm. as previous chapters, where it was like, "This thing is really important. Remember this one thing for the end of the book." Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, all of these are still being set out in a way that, like, even me, I can make note of these and write them down to return to. Mm-hmm. But it is it is an interesting. It is a chapter that is trusting its reader more than we've necessarily seen in the past. Or it's giving us not just one mystery to focus on each chapter, it's giving us a lot of mysteries, a lot of questions. And it's trusting us to keep track of those long enough to find out what they are. 
And if I'm if I'm being honest, I think that this is a very smart move to start with this chapter on Rowling's part because I think that you could you could technically you could write this book without this chapter. But yeah. the the plot does get much more complicated and Voldemort's mm. plan gets much more complicated. And so I think if you're trying to bridge the gap between the younger readers who have read all of your books and the older readers who are perhaps aging with them um, mm-hmm. or who you want to be your readers for this, like you have to give a little bit of a roadmap on like, here's how to think about this. Um, or at least here are things to pay pay attention to. So I actually think, like, I think it's a, a kind of a cool chapter to open this book with that, as we've talked about, is different from the other books. Um, yeah. But I think it's also like a very um, smart editorial choice to do it as well. No, I straight up love it for three reasons. One, what you mentioned, it's a very useful primer for reading and understanding the text to come and what things to pay attention to and what things to look out for. And that is a very wise structural decision in going through what are now increasingly long and complex books. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm particularly given their target audience. Point number two, as just a hook, as a narrative lead-in to get you invested and curious in the text, this is remarkably effective. Yep. This is this is a hell of a sell to get us involved now in the text. Uh, Sarah, actually a question just before we even get into questions. How far apart were these books in terms of years when they were published? Um, I, ooh, that's a great question. I believe that this was when they were coming out a year apart. Um, okay. They they came out pretty consistently a year apart. I do have a um, <laughs> a note in my mother's handwriting in the beginning of this book that says first day out seven eight two thousand. Um, yep. So. so it's ninety seven ninety eight ninety nine two thousand and then okay. two thousand three for oop for the fifth one. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a great way to get us invested back in the text. You know, for a lot of authors, they really need this because they've had, you know, five, six, seven, 30-year gaps between their stories for reasons. Even with this, though, this really gets you involved back in the mystery and key moving figures in this story and this overarching lore. Um, it's quite good in that regard. Also, just as a piece of writing, this is a well-written chapter. This is this is well-paced. It's tense. It has a lot of buildup. It has a lot of atmosphere. This is just good writing. It's... It, I would never say that, she, that J.K. Rowling has been a bad writer over the course of this series. She's been very effective throughout all things with some wizard wheezes and quibbles we've noted before. <laughs> but she's visibly getting better. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. She is improving in her craft. She's improving, improving in her artistry and even her you know, ability to work in this universe. And that's fun to observe in a writer over time. And with these being year to year, that's a nice process I'll need to keep better track of. Yeah, it's not like an easy writerly feat to choose to kind of, from a third person perspective, follow Frank around, who is mm. nobody as far as the story is concerned. Um, mm. And to also do the kind of flash forward and flashback. Like, I, yeah, I think you're right, Spencer. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a credit to her as well is that a lot of her one-off characters have been very one-note before. Frank is actually for a character that we're not going to presumably see again unless muggles can be ghosts, which I'm <laughs> guessing they can't because discrimination. Um, he's a remarkably three-dimensional and complex over the course of a very limited time. I mean, we honestly, back- even compared to the main characters so far. so <laughs> He has a background. He has motivation. He has outside influences. He mm-hmm. has drive. I care about Frank really quick, and I was actually rather sad to see him go here, um, of where we get to see a scene of where Frank actually tries to think up a pretty clever plan on the fly when he's got, from his perspective, two murderers staring down at him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't Doesn't. work, primarily because he's dealing with Voldemort, but it was not dumb, and he in Mm -hmm. no way acts acts the fool or the coward when it comes to this scene. He's caught, 
but he takes it like a proper English gentleman should. <laughs> yep. Um, and it's a well-painted, intimidating scene when we get to see her, too, of where I would love to see the visuals of this in the movie, because I already have a, a stark image in my mind of walking into the room, the fire roaring, the snake wrapped around the chair, the chair turned away. And seemingly not like a massive uh, lounge chair either, but large enough that whatever... Say wing-back. It's, it's wing-backed, but he expresses surprise that he didn't see the figure's head stick, sticking over it. So it's not yep. like, you know, the four or five foot wick. Exactly. Uh, but the idea of the figure being tiny and hidden behind the chair, and only being the mystery being revealed only to him and in death, and hidden from us as the reader, I want to see that played on the screen, because that just seems... So many opportunities for well-done filmmaking associated with that. Yeah. And, Um, you know, it's kind of a surprise that, you know, a very quick sort of abracadabra and he's gone. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it is is an effective hell of an opening that gets me really invested both in the text itself, but also the very mysteries that we're apparently going to have at play as we go through this novel. So I'm back in it. We've been, we've taken a break for a while now before getting into the next book, but one chapter in, I am invested and I'm... I have a long list of varying notes to return to over time as we continue to unlock the mysteries that wrap up. But yep. And I will say that, that Sarah, I'm, I'm curious if part of this is why your favorite, it's your favorite is, you know, there's still some quibbles that I had with some of the uh, textual choices, shall we say. Um, there was a sentence that was very much in my uh, wheelhouse for the number and styling of all of the commas. Sure. <laughs> I don't think but, those go away. <laughs> yeah, um, that that is my guess. But I, I did enjoy this chapter and the characters a lot more than previous books. That is the highest yeah. praise you have given any single chapter in all of this series so far, BJ. Well, to, to use a phrase from Star Trek, it really feels like it's growing the beard. Uh, with respect to this series, of where mm-hmm. it, not not just the overall improvement in quality, but also just a, a clear increase in maturity, mm-hmm. which I'm guessing is just respecting the fact that the chosen audience, if they've been growing up with these books, is now four years older than when they started. Yes, mm-hmm. they're they're getting into their teenage years. They're possibly aging along with the same ages of our main characters, and they can deal with more mature themes. And so this opening with you know mystery and talk of not 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 just one murder depicted, but another murder apparently happening off page and another murder needed. Foul plots by these people. You know, complex mysteries of varying parts and various moving elements all occurring at the same time. This is expecting a lot more of our readership, and it's maturing mm-hmm. itself in the process. And so, Sarah, I think you even noted before, I think I think I'll this while I was referencing, is that these books are kind of broken into eras, where, like, there's the childhood era, and then we get into the more mature the era. two trilogies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is... And this is the, the segue novel. Mm-hmm. That is the, the theory that is floating around. It, it seems apparent, at least from this first chapter. We'll see if it holds. We're going to return back to our main characters, and I imagine lose an element of this, you know, gothic horror that we got in this chapter, just as part return to their youthful idealism. But I imagine we won't ever quite return to the childhood fantasy that was the first couple books, at least not in the same way. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's that was a very <laughs> yeah that that was a very extended newbie's notes. But I, there was a lot going on in this chapter. But yes. I think. I think we should go from here to house points. somehow, somehow, <laughs> Hera deciding house, Sarah deciding house points. I think um, Slytherin gets him this time around. Well, so what I was actually <laughs> going to say, obviously, um, poor old Frank is not doing well here. Although I don't think that we have, um, 
ever given or taken away house points from a muggle before. Probably not. Maybe in one of the other first chapters. Um, so I'm going to actually leave Frank aside for a second here and say that Wormtail wow. is really losing the points. Yes. Here. Um, His entire life seems miserable. Um, but as, as far as like actual, actual winners of the chapter, it does seem like Nagini is going to get a good dinner. Yes. Oh, that's intimidating. Hadn't thought about that. Um, so I believe we have given points or taken away points from a muggle, unless this is a spoiler, which is Dudley. Mm, I think we have. So, yeah, Dudley and, and I maybe, like, I, don't, I can't remember the doses in general, but I'm pretty sure Dudley has either gotten... We might have done Vernon at some point like that. Yeah. Uh, um, Sarah, you, you are the god empress of this segment. Who is the winner and who is the loser? Well, you know, honestly, hmm. Frank did not have... I am very sad, as you are, Spencer, that Frank died. I like Frank. Um, but he did seem to die in a way that he wouldn't, like... He was be unhappy about. Yeah, he was challenging. Death. Yes, um, and you pity him because he is not the fool. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where he died screaming, but he died standing. Yes. He, really, he, he pretty mm-hmm. much went out on his own terms. I think almost in an element of his head, once they saw through his lie, I think he almost kind of expected to die, but wanted to see his murderer in the face. I think that might be true, and all of the evidence we have is that he didn't suffer. Um, mm-hmm. It did seem to be a very quick, quick death. Um, yes. So I actually, for the ongoing misery <laughs> that is his life, Wormtail is going to be my loser of this chapter. Uh, why he is still here and dealing with this situation, unclear at this point. Um, winner is, is Nagini. We are giving it to the snake. Snake snacks. <laughs> the snake snacks, yes. How, how big is Nagini? I think they described it as being 12 like... 12 foot. That is a big damn poisonous snake. Mm-hmm. Yes, so yes, I do believe that a 77-year-old curmudgeonly gardener is probably a snack for a 12-foot snake. <laughs> right, well, uh, Sarah, from here we go into questions. Are you ready for that? How could you possibly have questions that I could give any sort of answer to at this point? I had like nine that I'm not even asking you. I'm just writing them down for later. Okay, well, lay them on me then. Uh, well, this won't be to reference, but how different is the Muggle timeline compared to our universe? As far as we know, um, it's the same. Um, yeah, I mean, as we don't really, we get so few references to like actual Muggle history throughout the course of these books. Honestly, um, Frank and World War II, being a World War II veteran is one of the only ones we get because we spend so so little time in the Muggle world um, mm-hmm. that, like, th- I think we can assume that. That the wizards condone the Third Reich. Well, listen, we have a lot of evidence that there are some questionable opinions being held in a not insubstantial um, portion of the wizard community, and we will get more evidence of that as we go through this series. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, that they basically don't know about World War II, I feel like, is unsurprising. Yes. Um... But yeah, I think that we can we can essentially assume that the wizarding world is happening in a fairly close facsimile of our world as far as the Muggle world goes. Mm-hmm. With, with just enough ambiguity to have freedom for the writer. Yes, yes, indeed. It, it is, we're we're declaring it to be World War Two, and it almost certainly is a stand-in. But the, none of the characters do in the text. No, it's just the war. 
well, Rome, but that's or a war. Very British. Sure, but that would be World War One. The war. That was how they would refer to it before World War Two, certainly. Yeah. Right, and but after World War Two, anyway. Yeah, but the timeline would that is discussed in this chapter would make it World War Two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, BJ, your turn. Uh, what color is Avocavadra? I believe that's a green flash of light, BJ. Interesting. Remind me what that is. So Avada Kedavra is the um, the curse that killed Harry's parents and that was turned on to Harry. We mm-hmm. might not learn that until later in this book specifically. Um, but that Harry keeps seeing the flash of green light and particularly when he was dealing with um, the Dementors, kept seeing the flash of green light because that is um, the visual of the curse that killed his parents. Yeah, and that's sort of the abracadabra joke that keeps yes a running total in this series that i referenced probably in book one <laughs> gotcha. Um, gotcha but okay. so yes the uh, the assumption is that voldemort used avada kedavra on frank okay and we learn uh, more specifically about that and a couple of other spells related to it in this book uh does the quidditch world cup work under the same uh annual rules or semi-annual rules that the muggle world cup does I can't remember how long it is between them. It does move around, well, like the Olympics or the World Cup or whatever. It does move around the world where it's being held. It is being held in England this year. Convenient. Um, But I can't remember if it's held every year or not. Okay. I was going to ask this, if you're comfortable telling us. Have we met Nagini before? I don't think we have. Um, Gotcha. BJ, you have confused me slightly. Yes, that I is would my have said, secondary not, job in this. <laughs> before you seem to think that we had met her, but no, I we have not, as far as I can remember. I don't think we met her in the last book. Don't tweet me if I'm wrong. <laughs> don't at me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. All right, I've got one more, but BJ, any more from you? Uh, I know where my questions lead for the most part, <laughs> so go ahead. All right, well, I don't think this one's much of a spoiler, because I kind of have my own theory on it, but... Are we led to believe from this chapter that Voldemort did not know Frank? Yeah, yes, Voldemort did not know Frank. And oh, that, really? That, it, it makes sense, given you know, the, orf- the orphanage and everything mm-hmm. else, where he yeah. spent time, oh, and he yeah. did not react to him at yeah. all, and that he knows everything. So. I mean, I guess it, it might be a little bit of a spoiler, because we don't know exactly what, what age Tom went into the orphanage, um, but I think I, it, he does not know Frank. Well, particularly since it's Voldemort here. If he knew Frank, he would reference that in some way. I think so, yeah. Man, yeah. man knows everything. Yeah. Which he claims to. <laughs> he gives a pretty good impression of it most thus far. His reading of Frank right there was intimidating as mm-hmm. shit. Um, so no more questions for this chapter? Uh, so, so many that I don't want to be taunted over. So no, many no, questions, not no more questions we're asking this chapter. Not um, a one. Guys, I am so excited to be back into Harry Potter with you after our, our brief hiatus. Um, mm-hmm. We have coming up for our next episode, chapter two, The Scar. It's very interesting and very exciting that somehow some spell seems to be playing here. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, um, but yeah, it's fun to uh, start out the new year with a new book. Absolutely. All right, so this has been fun, y'all. Um, thank you.